We are looking at Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, to chapter 14, verse 27. So settle in. A prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them. Beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded those I prepared for battle. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming. A cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place. At the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, like sheep without a shepherd, they will all return to their own people. They will flee to their native land. Whoever is captured will be thrust through. All who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives violated. See, I will stir up against them the Medes, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God, like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There, no nomads will pitch their tents. There, no shepherds will rest their flocks, but desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will inhabit her strongholds. Jackals, her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. Chapter 14, the, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And Israel will take possession of the nations and make them male and female servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil, and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows, and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon gloat over you and say, Now that you have been laid low, no one comes to cut us down. 
The realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations, they will all respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is, is, is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his, let his captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out of your tomb. Like a rejected branch, you are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit. Like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. Let the offspring of the wicked never be mentioned again. Prepare a place to slaughter his children for the sins of their ancestors. They are not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will wipe out Babylon's name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Almighty. I love that image. Just sweep with the broom. Oh. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains, I will trample him down. His yoke will, will, his yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. So there's one thing. Uh, there's one thing I want to communicate in this in this sermon, brothers and sisters. There's a lot. There's a lot of judgment in these coming chapters, uh, and you and I are going to be tempted to tune it out because it just seems to be a lot of like blood and guts. But we also don't like to stare into the abyss of divine judgment. But we're going to have to because because we have to really understand the way that God feels about sin. Because when we know how God feels about it, then that's going to shape the way that we feel about it. Because sanctification is not just about what you do. It's not just about what you think. It's also about how you feel. And I want you to know that I, I, I want to be, be, be really careful as I, as I press this morning because we, we, right now we are in what, what I like to call kind of a, an, an epidemic of despair. The pandemic has broken us apart from one another, and as a result, many of us are lonely. And deeply so. How many of you have felt lonely at some point over the course of the last few years? Anybody? When I emphasize this morning the sinfulness of sin, 
I want you to hear it not just personally, but also socially. Because when we think about sanctification, we're thinking about a social reality, not just something that affects me. But to really see this, I want you to, I want you to visualize what's going on in these chapters. And, and, and Babylon is the perfect image for us to understand this. So first, we, we've, we've got to understand what the big deal is about Babylon. There are two big empires in the scriptures that function as God's nemeses. Think, think Lex Luthor to God's Superman, or the Joker to God's Batman. The first of these is Egypt, the agents of Israel's first great trauma. Egypt was the nation that enslaved the people of Israel for 430 years, centuries of brutal, back-breaking exploitation. But the Lord delivered them in an act that the people of God were supposed to remember for their entire lives. It was identity forming. This was the fact that God saved the people of Israel from Egypt is one of the most important things that they're supposed to know about God. They're supposed to repeat it to their children for generations, for generations and generations. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, the Psalms, Jeremiah, Daniel. In each and every one of these books, God introduces himself as the God who freed you from Egypt. I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt. That phrase shows up over and over and over again. It's God saying, remember that trauma? Remember the one who saved you from it? And remember why I did it. I did it so that you would be my people. Remember those plagues that I sent on your oppressors? Remember the fact that I collapsed the sea on top of Pharaoh? Remember why? Because you're to be my people. Egypt is one of God's great enemies. But the second, and arguably even worse than Egypt, and shows up in the scriptures before Egypt, is what's condemned in this chapter. We're talking about Babylon. Because Babylon, one of the things that we'll, that, that, that we'll find over the, over the course of Isaiah, we're preaching through the whole book, what we're going to find is that we've been talking about Assyria as this, as this empire that's going to attack Judah. But Assyria is actually going to be defeated by Babylon. And what Babylon is going to do is ba- Babylon is going to take the people of God into exile. You see, Egypt... Egypt enslaved the people before they even were a people. What Babylon is going to do is Babylon is, Babylon is, going, to, is, 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 is going to take the people away from their land and away from their temple. You see, Babylon, Babylon is going to, what, 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 what Babylon is going to do is going, is going to declare to the people, we're your kings now. We're your gods. Your God doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, because of, our, because of our conquest of you, your God is powerless. But here's the other thing about, about, about Babylon. Because one of the things we have to understand about Babylon is that Babylon is what, is, what, is what happens when a nation is handed over to and founded on greed, pride, and blasphemy. Babylon is the great enemy of God and of his people. And when you read the rest of the scriptures, you find actually that Babylon shows up even before Egypt. If you go back to Genesis 11, the last narrative that we hear before we, before we meet Abraham, we see people building the Tower of, you know the name of the Tower? Tower of Babel. 
Think of this as like as the first communal act of greed, pride, and blasphemy. In, in Genesis 11:4, it says, "Then they said, "Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves." And the result is Genesis 11:8 and 9. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. That word Babel is just Babylon. Like every time you see Babylon throughout the Old Testament, it's Babel or Babel. Babylon shows up in the very beginning of the scriptures. Because we're not just we're not just we're not we're not we're, we're not just talking about a city, though we are. We're not just talking about an empire, we are. We're also talking about a logic, a way of going through one's life. Babylon shows up at the beginning, and Babylon also shows up at the end. In Revelation 17, 3 to 6, we're given, we're given a harrowing vision. John says, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Yeah, John, I'd be greatly astonished too. That's kind of gross. But this is John's divine vision of what Babylon represents in the scriptures. The heads and the horns, we're told in that chapter, are representations of kings, earthly empires. The woman herself, according to this, to this chapter, is Babylon, the representation of oppression and domination. Babylon is in the beginning. Babylon is at the end. And what we encounter in Isaiah is that Babylon's also in the middle as a historical force, as a historical force of domination and oppression. And the question of these chapters is, God, what are you going to do about it? Well, that's what Isaiah 13, 1 to 14, 27 is all about. What God's going to do about it. In Isaiah 13, 1 to 5, the Lord is uttering a battle cry and gathering an invading army from throughout the cosmos. It's like, it's like the terrifying moment in The Lion King when, 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 when Simba sees the rocks rattling on the ground and he looks up the hill and he sees a stampede of wildebeest coming straight for him. The Lord is gathering numbers. Verses 9 to 13 emphasize the intensity of the Lord's anger at Babylon. Verse 9 says that the day of the Lord is a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners in it. The, the heavens are going to tremble. The whole earth is going to shake with the anger of the Lord. Verses 14 to 16 drive home the brutality of the judgment against Babylon. Like a hunted gazelle. Like sheep without a shepherd, they will all return to their own people. They will flee to their native land. Whoever is captured will be thrust through. All who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives violated. Now, one of the things you're going to ask is, is, is the Lord approving of the slaughter of children and the sexual assault of women? No. What's going on here? And this is actually, I think, this is something that we need to think about whenever we, whenever we encounter the language of God's wrath. 
God often executes his wrath by removing his restraining hand. As I mentioned before, one of the evils that, 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 that Martin Luther King named was, was militarism. Whenever we encounter human wars, sexual violence is often a weapon of war, a weapon of terror. One of the things that's, one of the things that's going on here when God says that the Medes are going to, are going to, are going to destroy the Baptist the Babylonians. One of, one of the things he's saying is that like, you're going to see all of the horrors of what human beings do to one another. You're going to see what happens when sin runs rampant. The Lord is saying that in his judgment, he's going to show you what human nature in all of its corruption, the havoc that it wreaks. In the day of the Lord, those who are slaves to sin will, will know how brutal of a slave master they really have. This chapter continues with, with God taking responsibility for Babylon's eventual collapse, even though, as I said, the Medes are going to be the, the tool of his judgment. We're told in verse 19, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. Nobody's going to live there except for scavenging animals, hyenas. As a matter of fact, the words that are translated wild goats in that passage, uh, it can also be translated goat demons. <laughs> like basically, the Lord is wiping the slate clean and there's not going to be anything, there's not going to be anything, uh, 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 anything conducive to human life in that space. But chapter 14... Chapter 14 is the reversal chapter. In, in, in chapter 14, God declares the reason, he, he declares his mercy for his people and the reason why Babylon faces such brutality. Because God is brutal with the oppressor because of his compassion for the oppressed. In verse 3, we're told that God does this to give his people relief from their suffering, turmoil, and from the harsh labor forced on them. And from there to verse 27, you have a taunt that's aimed at Babylon and its king. Cackling laughter at the oppressor who thought that they were in charge. Derisive ridicule of the enemy who thought that they could oppress the people of God. It's a hardcore few chapters. But you ask, as I know you ask whenever we encounter these, these, these prophetic words, what, is that, what does that mean for me? The first thing it means is this. God absolutely hates sin, oppression, and abuse. Absolutely. As in it goes against everything that he is. The triune God is substantially love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in an eternal relationship of self-giving. What, what, what oppression and abuse do is they, they, they attempt to negate that dance of seeking to break the shalom that God has called us into. And God ain't having it. He hates sin. I, and, and I, like, like, I, I want to be very careful whenever I use the language of hatred. And I think that, but, but, but I think that one of the reasons that passages about judgment bore some of us, or, 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 or why these are passages that we kind of pass over, is because we don't hate sin. We just think it's kind of a nuisance. But God hates it. He recoils at it. He does not want it in his presence. And, and, and if we look at Romans 12, 9, that's how we're supposed to feel about it. Paul says, 
in, in Romans 12, 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. That word for hate only shows up there in the, in the New Testament. It's abhor. It doesn't just mean, I really don't like what's evil. No, 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 no. It means be disgusted by it, repelled by it, want nothing to do with it. Seek to separate yourself fully from it. Jake Randolph ruined, ruined my life yesterday. So he showed, me, he showed me a tweet. It's got some data on, uh, on how many folks think that adultery is always wrong. I want you to raise your hand if you were born between 1980 and 1989. Okay. Of you, when, when, when folks in this age group were, were surveyed, in, to, in 2004, 85% of you said that Adultery is always wrong. Surveyed again in 2021, of the group born from 1980 to 1984, 65% of you said that adultery is always wrong. So a drop of 20%. Of the folks born from 1985 to 1989, that dropped to 50%. 50% of people are saying that adultery is always wrong. Brothers and sisters, adultery is always wrong. Always. There are no excuses. There are no excuses for it. I, I want to be, I I be, really, be really clear about that. Minor excursus. There's a great book, The Great Sex Rescue. Wonderful book. Whenever I do premarital counseling, that's one of the, that's one of the books that I, that, I, that I encourage. One of the narratives that's, that's imbibed by some of us is that, is that we are somehow to blame if our spouse cheats on us. If your spouse does that to you, it is their fault, not yours. There is no, I should have done this or should have done that. It could have kept this person from doing, no, 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 no. You're called to love. That person is called to repentance because sin wrecks lives and it wrecks relationships. I think about it uh, as, a, as a really, as a, as, a, as a kind of whiplash segue. I think about the second episode of the Powerpuff Girls. It's called, the second episode is called Insect Inside. And the villain in this episode is a guy named Roach Coach. And this episode terrified me for years. It gave, it gave me nightmares because, because there's a, there are a number of scenes where this guy like controls roaches and they just, and they just swarm everywhere. So, so, I, so I, would have, I, would ha- I would have dreams about it and, I, and I'd be scared to get up out of my bed because I'd be afraid that just roaches were going to come swarming out of the walls. It was terrifying. But the thing, about, the thing about roaches, especially German cockroaches, yeah, mm-hmm, they're very difficult to completely exterminate. They lay a lot of eggs. There's very little time from their birth to their maturity. And they hide extremely well. Kind of like sin. It multiplies. It doesn't take a lot of time to get from bad to worse and it loves to hide. We have to see our sin like we see roaches, fit for nothing but extermination. Now I want us to remember, I am not talking about people. I am not going to stand in front of you and say that the Lord hates any person. 
In fact, the scriptures remind us that God wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What the Lord hates is sin. What we're talking about is the impulse that lies at the heart of the city of Babylon. And, and, and often when we, when we think about sin, we think about distinct acts that we commit. I was, I was harsh with my spouse. I, I lied to my coworker. I failed to be generous. Whatever. Sin is not primarily an act, though it is. According to the scriptures, sin is an oppressive power. Capital S, sin. And those who are enslaved to it commit acts of disobedience. See, God doesn't just hate sin because it's disobedience. He hates it because it is a rival power that's trying to take what is rightfully God's. Because God made you. God formed you. And he doesn't want you to be enslaved to something that doesn't care about you at all. And one of the worst things that sin can do to us, brothers and sisters, is it strips us of our joy. As I mentioned, we're in an epidemic of despair. Deaths of despair have been on the rise quickly over the course of the last few decades, especially these last few years. I'm thinking of, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking of suicides, drug overdoses, alcoholic liver, liver disease. All of, these are, all, of these are ways, all of these are ways that we try to cope with our suffering. And COVID thrust many of us into isolation. And in the midst of that, sin did not take a break. And in many cases, sin as a power took advantage of our isolation. And it pressed in against us even more. Child and domestic abuse rose through this pandemic. And, the only, and one of the only things that's worse than suffering is suffering and being told that there's no purpose and no end to that suffering. And that's what leads to despair. And that is precisely the situation that sin, the world, and the devil want us in. That's, the, that's, that's likely the mindset that the exile likely forced upon the people of Israel under Babylonian rule. But it is in that darkness that the Lord intervened. Because he told his people that he loves them and that he would remove the yoke of their oppressor from their neck. That's what he said to them in Isaiah 13 and 14, and that's what he says to you. Because the good news of the gospel is that the triune God and king of the universe saw this rival king, sin, attempting to rule his people. And so he sent his anointed one, his Messiah, his son, to reclaim his kingdom. You see, brothers and sisters, the scriptures are like a tale of two kingdoms, the kingdom of Babylon and sin and the kingdom of God. The logic of the former leads to domination, to oppression, and to death, but the logic of the latter leads to life. They are not compatible with each other. They are at vigorous odds with one another. The kingdom of Babylon says kill or be killed. The kingdom of God says love your enemies. Babylon says accumulate because you're the only one who cares about you. The king of the kingdom of God says give because your father in heaven cares about you. Babylon says hoard. Jesus says share. Babylon says steal. Jesus says depend on the community that he's called to support you. Babylon says worry. Jesus says rest. Each and every one of us, apart from Christ, are subject to the logic of Babylon. We're citizens of that kingdom, that infernal kingdom. And when Jesus said the things that he did in the Gospels, we hear them and we think, that's ridiculous. Because we remain subject to the logic of Babylon. See, Jesus lived a life entirely consistent with his own teachings. And that set him at odds with earthly and infernal empires. Because Babylon does not like being told that it's wrong. 
And the apocalyptic woman of the, of, the, of the book of Revelation is drunk with the blood of the saints who bore witness to that wrong. Some of that blood in that cup is the blood of our Savior who went to the cross as a victim of the power of sin. He suffered on the cross, bearing the penalty, not only of the sins that we commit, but bearing witness to what, to what the power of sin wants for all of us, death. But while he went down as a victim, he came up as a victor. His passion was a battle of kings. Babylon brought Rome and its weapons of oppression, and Jesus brought his death. And the weapons of Satan were blunted and destroyed by the suffering of the Son. Because the Son suffered and died for you and for your sin, dear brother and dear sister, you can be forgiven. If you believe in him, confess that he is Lord and believe that he was raised from the dead, what you're saying is that in this battle of kingdoms, Babylon has fallen. The oppressive king has been defeated. In fact, the defeated king has been ridiculed, like in the second half of Isaiah 14. It's one of the reasons why I love uh, what, what, what Paul says in Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. But when you say that, you're also affirming what Paul says in the chapter before that, where he says, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, brothers and sisters, if we, if we believe in Christ, we have, left the, we have left the kingdom of Babel and its logic, and we have entered into the kingdom of the Son. What does that mean? It means that when you were not in Christ, you looked at Christ's words and the rest of the scriptures, and you thought, ah, that's impossible and impractical. That's what the logic of Babylon says. The logic that leads to God's anger and the judgment that was so brutally outlined in Isaiah 13 and 14. But now, if you are in the kingdom of the Son, if you have been indwelt by God himself, the Holy Spirit, now that you've been joined to a community of people who have been indwelt by that same Spirit, these things that the Scriptures tell us to do are not only possible, they are necessary. Now, not in the sense that you earn your salvation by doing them, but I also don't want you to think that, like, like, don't let your understanding of the Reformation like, stop you from seeing the scriptures as they're meant. For, for, the, for the Christian, these are things that by the Holy Spirit, you can do. By the Holy Spirit, but you can do them. <laughs> and not only that, but they're the way to true joy and true fulfillment and true freedom. A life lived in the grace of God is a life of true joy, true fulfillment, true freedom. If you are a Christian, you are not a slave to sin. I don't care what the devil tells you in your darkest moments. If you're united to Christ, sin as a power does not rule you. It is a mortally wounded animal impotently swiping at you. And when we do sin, we're acting like we're still citizens of Babylon. But the Holy Spirit is entreating you by his word, trying to remind you that is not who you are. You're not enslaved. You're free, free to obey the Lord, free to love your neighbor, free to sacrifice your self-interest for your brother or sister. A few weeks ago, I talked about greed. I didn't warn you then. I'm going I'm, I'm to be talking about greed all year. So just, just settle in. 
Fact of the matter is that exploitation is all around us, and we're often heavily invested in being blind to it. And so as the scales are being painfully stripped from my eyes, I'm going to try to strip them from your eyes too. So yay for that. The antidote to greed is not just generosity. It's solidarity. Because it's possible for us to give and not care. It's possible for us to give and not love. Especially in an age where, where philanthropy and other forms of giving are, are more often paternalistic than sincere. So beginning here, within this body, if your brother or sister asks you for something, give it to them. Lend without expecting repayment, as Jesus says. That's not me, that's just Jesus. And you will find that actually it's more freeing than expecting it back. Being a debt collector is really annoying. Plus it's, like, plus it's a lot of work to keep track of who owes what and payback schedules and all this stuff. Also, like, Jesus told you not to do that. So there are a number of reasons to lend without expecting repayment. The logic of Babylon says when you give, expect a return on your investment. Jesus says give and share because everything you have is a gift from the Lord. The second thing I would encourage us to do is weep. When we see the judgment of God in the scriptures, our first response is often shock. We see, we see Sodom and Gomorrah being judged for their lack of hospitality, we're told in Ezekiel. We see Achan and his family in Joshua 7, who are stoned for stealing some of the items in Jericho when the Lord told them not to. We're, 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 we, we, we think of Ananias and, and Sapphira being, being, being struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Each of these are cases of God's direct judgment and anger, and we get shocked. We ought to weep. Because when we see our own sin, we are very tempted to think lightly of it. We ignore the fact that even the smallest of our sins keep us from the joy that the Lord has for us. Some of us take, take, take pride in the fact that we don't commit the big sins. Uh, and, and, and Gregory the Great has some words for us. He says this, If they are not scared by the extent of their, of their evil actions, they ought to be frightened when they consider their frequency. For clearly, deep rivers are filled by small but innumerable drops of rain. And seawater entering secretly has the same effect on a ship as a tidal wave pouring over the side. Repentance is not just about stopping evil and turning toward God. It's also about what Paul commands in, in Romans 12, that we hate what is evil and cling to what is good. That is, our sin ought to grieve us deeply. So here's my challenge to you this week. When you have a meal with a mosaic brother or sister, spend a moment grieving your sin. Grieving not only the harm that it does to, to you, but grieving the harm that you do to your brother or sister. We often ignore the weight of our sin because it, I mean, we, 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 we forget that it affects our relationship with God, our relationship with those whom we love, and our relationships with this body. And as terrifying as that challenge sounds, it's going to build the emotional intimacy of your friendships. Because we can't survive if our brothers and sisters are just surface acquaintances. We need brothers and sisters. 
And in, all of this, and in all of this, we have to remember, we depend daily on the grace of God. Because left alone, we'll go back to the logic of the dominion of darkness. Part of sanctification is emotional. We turn from our sin because it offends our God whom we love. It robs us of our joy and it ends in judgment. But on the contrary... The way of the kingdom ends in joy, deeper community, and security than you've ever known, and communion with the Most High God. The scriptures can be framed as a tale of two kingdoms, the kingdom of Babel and the kingdom of God. Beginning with Adam and Eve, we could continue down the road of trusting ourselves, living lives of greed and pride, and submitting ourselves to the logic of Babylon. Ultimately, we can continue on that path, and, we, and that path leads to judgment and death. That's what Isaiah is telling us in this text today. Or, we can place our faith in the Son of God, who loved us, died for us, and lives now to set us free. You can live by the logic of the kingdom of God, pouring yourself out for your, for your brother or sister in Christ, and being continually filled by the Holy Spirit. That second path sounds, seems a lot better to me. Let's pray.